0: In 2000, two gentlemen, Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger, uh, thought that they could come up with a, a, a better way of accessing information. Now, um, at that point in time, almost every American family had a, a large set of a Encyclopedia Britannica. How many of you had a set of Encyclopedia Britannica? How many of you ever cracked open those books and actually read it? Not as many hands came up. I actually sold books door-to-door uh, the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of college. I didn't sell Encyclopedia Britannica. Britannica, but something similar, and uh, it's interesting, that particular set of of books was one of the best-selling, but perhaps the least read (laughs) of all time. So these two gentlemen, Jimmy Wells and Larry Sanger, they thought they'd come up with a better way to access information, and so they they wanted to gather knowledge from the best and the brightest professors, historians, and, and researchers, and then have them write articles, and then they would upload those articles to a website. Well, after three years, they pulled the plug on the project. Uh, because the work was tedious. It was full of conflicts. They got stuck in arguments with each other during the editing phase. And after, after three years, they had only posted um, 24 articles. They wondered if they could fix their problems. And so they began to develop what they called a feeder system for Newpedia. They enlisted ordinary men and women, people like you and me. Uh, to, who were passionate about a subject, to to write about that subject and to voluntarily submit those articles for free. Well, By the end of that next year, they had posted 20,000 articles, and they had also changed the name. Wikipedia. Have you heard of Wikipedia? Wikipedia now has 20 million articles. It's the most accessible uh, encyclopedia on earth. Now, why the backstory on Newpedia and Wikipedia? Because many churches in, in our country operate like Newpedia. We have a few hired experts who produce very few results. Instead, um, what churches are designed to be and to do is to, to act like Wikipedia. And we're going to look at that this morning. If you would um, take your bulletin this morning. Now, you may not have seen it right away because it has a wraparound not an insert, because the bulletin is only one page, but it's got a wraparound. And in that bulletin, it's there every week, is our mission statement, right in the center toward the top of that bulletin sheet. Welcome to New Life Church, it says. Our mission is to engage those disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. This is what makes a uh, New Life Church new, and about life is we desire to delight in the God of creation through Jesus Christ. And as a result, we have sort of a vision statement, a three-part vision statement. Last week, Eric talked about the first part. We we connect. Today, I get to, uh, to teach and preach about the second part. We serve, and next week, Taylor's going to talk about how that we um, engage with one another in fleshing out uh, this mission statement. Now also last week, uh, we distributed copies of this little Mission Vision booklet, and uh, most of you should have picked up a copy. If you brought it back with you, then I'm going to ask you to pull it out. If you didn't, no problem. But if you're here today and were not here last week and don't have one of these, I'm going to ask a couple of ushers to come forward. Just raise your hand. If you were not here last week and did not get one of these copies, we want to make sure we put this into your hand. When you get that, or if you have one from last week, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to open it to the center. Open it to where the staples are. And you'll see in the center of this booklet is the essence of today's message. You'll see the idea that we serve as a team. And when we serve together, we do better. And Jesus looks most glorious. You'll also read there that we serve, but when we serve, we're never alone. We recruit and develop more servants, even, even while we ourselves are engaged in service. We pull for other people to be successful in ministry. This is the essence of New Life Church, and it's been a delight, truly a delight, for Debbie and I to be engaged just these last few months, first as visitors and now serving um, alongside the pastoral staff here uh, in, in the mission and the vision statement of what, the, what our church is all about. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So as I said two weeks ago when I preached for the first time here, go ahead and turn on your Bibles or turn in your Bibles, okay, to Romans chapter 12. What's on the screen behind me, what's in your bulletin on the talk sheet, uh, comes out of the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV. Some of the quotes that I'm going to share this morning out of God's Word are out of the NASB. I'm just comfortable in teaching from that. Some of you I know have the NIV. In fact, uh, there's uh, there are Bibles in the pew rack in front of you that I believe are the NIV. But let's just read through this. Let me read out loud. You follow along. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to focus on uh, the first eight verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, Paul writes, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes or gives in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's the passage for this morning. Now, what, what we get to do is to, to really kind of unpack this this morning, and I'm excited to, to do that. By the way, I wanted to share that I was so encouraged last Sunday... Um, Eric had just flown in the night before from a week-long vacation in Washington, D.C. He did not have a PowerPoint, but it was great because as he was reading the Scripture passage out of Ephesians chapter 2, I looked around, sitting over here, I I turned around uh, intentionally and looked around the audience, and it it was so awesome because everybody's eyes were on the book. Whether it was on a tablet or a phone or an actual physical Bible, and, and as he as he continued to read, I continued to look, and people were following along, and that's so exciting. This is a church that's committed to the book, to God's word. Well, let's let's delve into this deeply. Let's take a, a deep dive, so to speak, into these first eight verses and see what we can learn about what it means to serve. Those of you that were here two weeks ago, you also know that I'm a I'm a teacher at heart. Okay, and so I like to use outlines, and so. Um, what, you know, in fact, what I would encourage you to do, Debbie and I, we always carry a journal. We bring a journal right with our Bible so we have room to write, write notes and whatnot. There's not much room in the margins of our bulletin or our talk sheets. So I'd encourage you to bring a journal uh, when Scott's preaching, definitely when I'm preaching, when Tanner's preaching, when Eric's preaching, so that you can take some notes. And if you do have a journal or something to write on, you're, you're going to want to jot down these five points to this outline. Uh, this outline really just emerges right out of these eight verses. But it gives me um, sort of handles upon which we can hang some of God's truth. The first is this. We serve, why? Because all of life is worship. Now, you may have said to a a friend or a relative or a neighbor this morning, Hey, I'm going to church. Well, what are you going to church for? Well, I'm going to worship. And that's true. True. But that's not complete, because all of life is worship. And we'll see that in verse 1. In verse 2, we serve because our thinking has been transformed. Verse 3, our, our transformation, this transformation of our thinking, first of all, begins with ourselves. We have transformed thinking about ourselves. In verses 4 and 5, we'll discover that we have transformed thinking about other people within the church, within the body of Christ. And then finally, and for lack of a better word, we're going to have transformed thinking about our tools, about our gifts, our talents, our time, our energy. Let's back up to verse 1. We serve because all of life is worship. Notice again, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, which is your spiritual worship. In the New American Standard, the word, therefore, appears earlier than it does in the ESV. Uh, you may have heard this before, but a little adage, a little a little way to remember this. Whenever you see in Scripture, particularly in Paul's writings, whenever you see the term therefore, it's just a small little three-letter word in the Greek language, but whenever you see it, stop and ask yourself, what's that there for? Because it's a transitional statement. What uh, What Paul is about to say is, look, I want you to stop right now. I've been... Writing to you in the previous 11 chapters, now when he wrote this, it was a letter, it wasn't in chapters, but the previous, what we call 11 chapters, Paul was writing about doctrine, about teaching, about what some might call orthodoxy or correct doctrine, but now he's about to make a shift he does this in a lot of his letters. He does this in Ephesians. He does this in Thessalonians. You'll frequently see Paul launch into a, a, a teaching of, of doctrine, truths about the Christian faith, but then he'll, he'll stop halfway through the letter and he will say, okay, now it's time to basically kind of put the cookies on the lower shelf, so to speak, and, and let you really understand how this gets translated into real life. He also is appealing very strongly that, the ESV says appeal. Uh, the, the New American Standard uses the word urge. If you have a King James here this morning, it's an Old English word, beseech. It, it has the idea of, of exhorting strongly. He's saying, look, we have just uh, we've just been talking about the Christian life. Now I want you to learn how to walk that talk. Now it's time to, to translate that good information into actual lifestyle. Now it's time to obey. And he says, I'm appealing to you because of God's mercies. Now, you only have to look back to the, the, the last few verses of chapter 11. In, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 11, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. And then verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You only have to go back that far to see that that Paul is writing about these wonderful things. But if you look at all 11 chapters, you'll see great mercies of God. You'll see the the, the fact of salvation, how he has saved us by grace, not by our our personal works. He saved us through faith. He gives us peace. The gift of the Holy Spirit is entrusted to us. We get comfort from the presence of the Spirit. We have have power to walk this Christian walk. Uh, We have hope for the future. He gives us patience, and we have something to look forward to, the glory that is yet to come. So, based on all of those things that Paul's been writing about, the mercies of God, he's not just saying, okay, get up, get get going, and get, get, get involved. He's not just saying that. He's saying, based on all that God has given to us, these mercies of God, I'm urging you, I'm exhorting you, to begin to walk this walk. Specifically, he says this. He uses um, some... Uh, kind of liturgical terms. He uses some priestly terms out of the Old Testament. It's a technical term. It's actually a sacrificial term. He says, I want you to to present a sacrifice. Literally, the term that he's using there speaks of, of a decisive stepping forward with that lamb that's about to be slain and presenting that lamb uh, before this, before the place of sacrifice. That's what the term that Paul is using here. Without holding anything back, putting everything at God's disposal. Earlier in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul had said something similar. He said, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. New Life Church is committed to the the, the growth, the development of disciples, followers of Jesus. Uh, we're committed to, to spiritual maturity. But I can tell you, folks, spiritual maturity doesn't happen apart from intentional, deliberate acts of the will. And you know, We talk about how we've been justified by faith through through Christ, through the, the grace that God has given to us, and then begins that lifelong process of what we call uh, sanctification, or progressive sanctification, uh, that progressive setting apart of ourselves to the work of, of, of Christ's church. But sanctification progresses throughout life, but, but each individual advance is a decision of the will. Where we present ourselves, we we present these sacrifices to God. Why this emphasis on bodies? That's always intrigued me. Again, I, I was growing up in the church. I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was at the young ripe age of eight years old, and this always kind of intrigued me. Why why is Paul emphasizing? This term bodies. Well, his initial audience, these believers in the city of Rome, the capital of the world empire at that point in time, this would have been in direct contra- contradiction to the culture of their day. This would have countered the prevailing Roman culture of Paul's day. They believed in sort of a philosophical dualism, which said that the mind or the spirit was good, was noble, and was to be elevated. But the body, mm, not so much. So, in other words, what you can't see is what's most important, and what you can see, not so important. Basically, in fact, they said it's evil. Well, (laughs) the problem with that is you could do whatever the body wanted to do with no consequences, according to their philosophy. Paul is saying, no, the gospel is totally different from that. It's totally counter to that. And what God is asking us to do is to present even our bodies now the body 's always been important in god 's Word. But go back to creation. We are created in god 's image we are physically created in the image of God Genesis one or what about the incarnation John one fourteen Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He, he took on our flesh. He was the God incarnate in the flesh among us. Even the book of Hebrews talks about how because um, we are flesh and blood, Jesus became flesh and blood. So the body is always important. In fact, Paul makes a very, very strong argument for this in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15, that, that great passage about the resurrection, and we oftentimes preach on that on uh, resurrection Sunday morning. That um, w- without the resurrection of a physical body, Jesus physically resurrecting in the body, our faith is in vain, so the body 's always been very important, and, and basically, what Paul is saying here is that uh, the body is speaking of every single aspect of our lives, not just what we think about, not just what we feel deep inside, but what we do with everything that we have in our lives, everything, so worship. Presenting ourselves, we present our, even our bodies before God. Now, it's fascinating to me how he describes this sacrifice of our bodies. He says three things. He says, first of all, it's a it's a living sacrifice. Paul is not here talking primarily about uh, martyrdom. Rather, he's talking about presenting lives that are still alive and and that are pleasing to God. Do you know the problem with a living sacrifice, though? it's always crawling off the altar, right? We do that, don't we? We say, oh God, take my life, use it however... We sang that this morning, but then we turn around and we want to crawl back off the altar. And, and what Paul is saying is, no, the sacrifice that we present to God is living, it's ongoing. It's holy, it's that which is set apart for God. Sometimes we get tripped up on this word holy. We think of purity, we think of maybe freedom from evil. Whenever Paul uses this term holy... He's using it to describe more a, a, a specific being set apart for something, for God's purposes. I, I've used this illustration. Debbie's just going to shake her head when she when she realizes I'm going to use it again. But I've used this illustration for years. When our son Nathan, who's a who's now in his 30s, when when he was very very young, and at that time, uh, this was probably before electric razors, which I use now, but I used a you know a safety razor. That safety razor was holy that safety razor was set apart for a particular purpose, namely, shaving my face. He got a hold of it one day, and he used it to cut up some paper, okay? unfortunately he didn't hurt himself, but he just used it to kind of cut up some paper. So when Dad took it the next time to shave his face, well, guess what happened? Well, the, the, the paper fibers, the wood fibers in that paper, destroyed the purposes for that safety razor. And my, my cheeks showed it. I had rivulets of blood running down my cheeks. It's like, what, what's going on here? It's because what was holy, what was set apart for one purpose and one purpose only, um, had, had been misused. That's essentially what Paul is saying here, is is our sacrifice is, is living and our sacrifice is to be set apart for God's purposes. And in doing so, then, it becomes acceptable. It becomes acceptable to God. And I love, uh, there's multiple ways to translate that word. It means well-approved, it means super-satisfactory, it means extraordinarily pleasing. In other words, we bring pleasure to God. As we present our lives to Him in every day, all-day worship, we bring great pleasure to God. So much so that uh, Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. Again, that's a... That's a term that's been a little hard to, to understand, to, to try to translate. Some of your Bibles might say, your reasonable service of worship. And that's a much closer translation. It comes from the Greek word logikos, from which we get the English word logical. In other words, this is something that's logical, it's rational, it's appropriate, it's, it's fitting, it's in keeping with who we are. This sacrifice of our lives to God, day in and day out, all day, 24-7, 365, this sacrifice, it's in keeping with who we are. Back in the first century, a Greek Stoic philosopher by the name of uh, Epictetus wrote this what is now famous statement it has been often quoted. And I love it, it's so descriptive. First century, mind you, he writes, If indeed I were a nightingale... I should be singing as a nightingale. And if I was a swan, as a swan. But as it is, I am a rational, logikos, being. I am a rational being. Therefore, I must be singing hymns of praise to God. And I exhort you to join me in this song. There's no separation between what is secular and what is sacred. Yes, we're, we're doing Amazing acts of sacred duty this morning, here, together, in this church, in this place, in this space. But when we walk out of these walls, it doesn't change. We're we're to continue on in the same vein, doing the exact same thing. In other words, everything we do is an act of worship. Real worship of our entire lives. Is, is what this passage is all about. And just like two weeks ago when we concluded our series on um, the Psalms, and we were looking at Psalm 32, and the use of that term Selah, it was used in a, in a song this morning as well. This is one of those Selah moments when you know we, we stop here in the text and we realize, oh my gosh, that's, that's exactly what God is calling me to do. This first point that came out of uh, verse 1 is really the the key. It's it's the large idea. It's the big idea of this whole passage that real worship, true worship, is presenting all of life to God every day, all day, in everything we do. But let's go a little bit further. In verse 2, we'll learn that we serve because our thinking gets changed when we commit all of life to God, then also what happens is our thinking gets changed. Now, there's, there's going to be two ongoing actions that we're going to focus on in verse 2. One of them is negative, and one is positive. The first one is this, this conformed idea. In verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, Paul writes, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. The, the term confirmed literally means stamped out. Or we might put that into a common vernacular today. You think of, a, of extruding plastic into or out of a mold. That's essentially what's going on here. In other words, to be fashioned according to someone else's pattern. The construction of this, of this actual verse gives the idea that this is an, an action that's ongoing already in process and that what is, what is being said here by Paul is we're to stop it. We're to stop an action that's already in process. In other words, our lives are already, our minds are already being conformed to the world around us, the culture around us. I love the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases the first part of this verse. He says, stop letting the world squeeze you into its mold. Isn't that great? Stop this action that's already occurring, that's already happening. And, and instead, uh, we're going to see in a minute, he wants our thinking to be transformed. Now, I want to just pause here for a second and not give an ad for the, the new iPhone X here. But uh, I want to talk about some of the influences that cause conformity to the culture of the world. I've been reading very slowly a book for the last, actually, several months called 12 uh, Ways Your Phone is Changing You by Tony Reinke. And it's 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 an easy read, but for whatever reason, I've just been plodding through this because it's, it's so rich. It's filled with uh, so much good information. But one thing he says in there is that studies have shown recently that we check our smartphones 85,000 times a year. Now, that averages out to about once every 4.3 minutes. So if you're not checking your smartphone right now, which I'm not doing right now because it's sitting in my briefcase over here, then that means i got to play catch-up this afternoon, right? So i gotta, I got to check it even more often. Also, according to a 2013 policy statement by the American Academy of Pediatrics, 8- to 10-year-olds spend 8 hours a day with various digital media. Think about that. Teenagers spend 11 hours in front of screens. One in three kids are using tablets or smartphones before they can talk. And I know that for a fact, because we've got five grandkids, and I've, I've seen them. Right? They're more adept at programming apps and whatnot on my phone than I am. And then they, they can barely even talk yet. John says in 1 John 2, Do not love the, the world or the things in the world. In, in, in fact, he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's my point. We are constantly bombarded with ways that the world is squeezing us into its mold. I'm not saying that we should turn off our phones or th- throw them in the Willamette River or, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. They're great tools when used properly, right? But understand what we're up against. Particularly as, as those of you that are young parents that have young children, understand, uh, what the world is trying to do. Peter, uh, puts it this way. In 1 Peter 4, he says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, so forth and so on. He says, and they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And on top of that, they slander you because you don't. Boy, is that descriptive of our culture? Peter's writing that in the first century, but that's, that sounds like Portland, Oregon in the, in the 21st century to me. That sounds like Bangkok, Thailand. That sounds like L.A., California. Uh, that's, that's the kind of world in which we live that's trying to squeeze us into, the, into its mold. Fortunately, we're not left with all that negativity. Fortunately, Paul goes on to say, instead, let ourselves be transformed. And he uses a term that we get the English word metamorphosis. We use to describe what happens when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's to change into another form representative of your true inner being. That's what Paul says, to let ourselves be transformed. In fact, it's a it's an ongoing, it's a present tense ongoing. It's something passively. It's done by someone outside of us, and it's a command. This transformation is done by God. This is not something that we can... And we can, you know, kind of screw up our courage and say, okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try that much harder. Uh, a week ago, I had the opportunity to, to drive down to the men's roundup and be with several men from this body. And it was great. And we had great teaching, great, great music, uh, just great fellowship together. But I've been to a lot of those where at the end of that time, guys get all fired up, pumped up, and we want to go back and take on the world and we're going to try that much harder. To ch- It doesn't happen that way. Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us that allows us, enables us to live the life that we've been called to live. To actually have this transformation come about. In fact, this term transformed is the exact same word that's used in the Gospels to describe what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was literally transformed right in front of them. Paul writes it this way. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Mind transformation, transformed thinking, comes as a result of the Holy Spirit doing that work within us. But we've got to participate with Him. We've got to, we've got to come alongside Him, so to speak. And we we are progressively transformed into the likeness of Christ because this this sort of veil over our minds has been removed. And allows us to see the glory of Christ in Scripture. In other words, service, members of Christ's Church, we serve. It as we serve, it begins with with a transformation of the mind and a transformation of the heart. Came across another really fascinating um, little graphic that I want to point a couple things out to you. What if we began to treat our Bibles the way we treat our cell phones? What if we carried it with us everywhere. What if we turned back to get it if we forgot it? How about if we checked it for messages throughout the day? Used it in case of an emergency and then spent an hour or more on it using it every day. Fascinating, right? The comparison between those two. What, what results when we do that is uh, a total change for the better, a renewal of our mind. In fact, th- this reverses the effects of the fall. Earlier in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that because of the, uh, the willful sinfulness of humanity, God gives them over to futility in their speculations and their foolish heart being darkened. He also says in verse 28 that God gave them over to a depraved mind. Well now, Paul is saying, I want that mind to be renewed. That's part of this transformation process, that, that control center of, of our perceiving and our understanding and our attitudes and our thoughts and our feelings and judgments and determinations. In Ephesians 4, Paul uses the imagery of changing clothes. He says, put off the old self, like, like a, a garment, which belongs to a former manner of life, and instead be renewed in, in your mind by putting on the new self. It's like, it's like changing clothes. We set our minds on things above not on things on the earth. We take every thought captive, Paul says, to the obedience that is Christ. And guess what? We don't do this by ourselves. We're not not capable, able of that. Uh, We have help. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, uh, the author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31, and he says, This is the covenant that I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. Well, what specific habits can we develop for this mind renewal, this transformed thinking? Again, in Philippians 4, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, is pure, is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell. Sit with, ponder, think about, dwell on these things. And also, in Colossians 3, uh, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I've been challenged by men in my life more recently than ever who are putting large passages of Scripture to memory so that they might... Uh, have at ready sort of random access memory, ready available to them, to, to be able to dwell, to sit with God's Word, letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And when we do that, we end up uh, testing or uh, discerning or approving the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? <laughs> Invest as much time as possible in His Word, and He'll reveal things to you, to me, out of His Word. In verse 3, we serve with transformed thinking about ourselves. Verse 3 reads, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Hmm. I, I love this, this terminology here. It speaks of having a, a, a balanced uh, approach to life, it speaks of being sane of being sound in one 's right mind. Uh, our opinions of ourselves should be in proportion not to our natural abilities but should be uh, according to god 's uh, gifts that he gives us, his supernatural capacities and this this term measure of faith. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, we're not bold to compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, because when they measure themselves by themselves (laughs) and and compare themselves with themselves, they lack understanding. We will not boast beyond our measure, but only within the measure of the sphere which God has apportioned to us as a measure. In other words, our, our thinking gets transformed. There's there's another passage of scripture that I want to reference. We don't have a lot of time and I won't take a lot of time, but I want to call it to your attention and you can look at this at your leisure later. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is a sort of a parallel passage to this one this morning, in a discussion about spiritual gifting, Paul writes about those who would view themselves in sort of an inferior sort of a way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 15, If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason less than a part of the body. Paul is saying, we have to have a, a, a sober, sane perspective of ourselves and not feel inferior because somehow we think our gifts aren't as good as someone else's. In fact, in verse 18, Paul says, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. But the flip side of that is to have a superiority complex. In First Corinthians 12, uh, in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, well, I don't need you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 26 really sums it all up. If, if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We're in this thing together. We're interconnected with each other. If I have an opportunity in the future to preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians 12, I'll, I'll probably give it the title I've given in the past called Armpits for Jesus. Okay. You know, we, we, in, in, look at that passage, you'll see it, it's in there. Paul talks about deodorant in there, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It, it talks about, about how that we give greater honor to those parts of the body that are unseemly. Armpits. But, but without my armpit, my arm is useless. My hands, my fingers are useless. But that helps to interconnect us. So we begin with uh, a transformed thinking about ourselves. Just earlier this week, Deb and I had the opportunity to, to meet with a couple from our church here. And we were talking about ministry opportunities. And I was struck by something she said. We were talking about a, an opportunity for ministry that um, a, another person had stepped aside to take on another role in another, another ministry. And... Her first thought was, oh my gosh, well, who, who, who's going to do that? Who, who's going to take the lead on this pretty significant ministry? She said, as the day progressed, she, she came to the conclusion, wait a minute, I get to do that. We get to do that. And she excitedly shared that with her husband. And when she was telling us that story, I thought, wow, that's exactly what this is about. Our, our thinking gets transformed about ourselves. Instead of thinking, oh man, I, someone's got to do this, so I guess i got to do it. No, as opposed to, I get to do this. This morning on the way here, I told Deb, I said, I don't have to preach this morning. I get to preach this morning. I get to use some gifts that God's given and, and, and break the bread of life so that we can learn from that. Very quickly, just to kind of to wrap this up, we, we serve also as we have transformed thinking about other people. Look again at verses four and five for, and it's, it's almost, uh, synonymous with what we just saw in first Corinthians 12. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You know, last week when Eric preached on the, the importance of community and being connected, he really, he really put today's message up on a T. For me, he really got it all set for me because spiritual formation or disciple building or this life of, uh, of progressive sanctification it occurs best within the context of community. Can we can we grow in the Lord individually? Sure, but not to the degree that we'll grow when we're when we're faced with people that maybe don't like us or we don't like them. Sure, we love each other. Hey, love you, brother. Don't really like you, but love you, brother. But within that context of real life, right? Where we rub each other wrong sometimes, that's when spiritual formation, that's when disciple building can really occur. Because our our thinking gets transformed about other people. Verses six through eight speak of this transformed thinking about our tools, these these uh, gifts or talents or energy. It's interesting. These three verses are actually one long sentence in the original language in which Paul is writing. It's like he can't stop. It's like he just keeps writing and writing and writing. One long sentence to communicate this information about what we call gifts of grace or grace gifts. The same root is used for both words. Let me give you a... Uh, a definition of grace gifts. This is this is Tim's definition developed over many years. I'm open to change still. But uh, a spiritual gift, I believe, a grace gift is a supernatural capacity for service. Entrusted by God to every believer to effectively work out his purposes in the church and in the world. He goes on in the next, uh, we won't take time to read this, but he goes on in these next three verses to list seven uh, specific grace gifts. And there's multiple other lists elsewhere in Scripture. Hopefully when we get to this passage um, in Romans, as we go through our study of Romans, we'll, we'll uh, unpack it in a little more detail. But I didn't want to do that again today. There's, there's one final point on the outline that I did not give you already. And it, it came to me sort of after the fact, but I realized, oh my gosh, this this point really undergirds everything else in this, uh, in this passage. And that is, we serve because Jesus is our model. Uh, the life of discipleship is literally just following in the footsteps of Jesus. And Jesus himself said in Mark and in Matthew, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, even to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to close us with a word of prayer. I asked, I sent an email out this week to um, all of the ministry leaders. I was given a list of ministry leaders, many of whom I don't know yet. And I said, be prepared. I may ask you to stand. I'm not going to do that, though. Um, all of us are ministry leaders in one form or fashion. There's just some that have kind of stepped up and said, I'm going to present my time, talents, and energy to serve God in this church in a particular way. But I'd like to pray for you specifically. You know who you are. You got an email from me this week. It's not about recognizing ministry leaders, but I do want to pray specifically for you as we pray here at the end of this message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're we amazed at the clarity of your word and how you speak so loudly to where we're at today, here living in Portland, Oregon, 21st century, yet the truths, the reality of your word um, just drive drive deep into our hearts. And Lord, so we want to respond. We want to respond and learn more about how to serve you better in the capacities that you've um, entrusted to us to serve. Lord, I especially would pray, lift up to you and pray. You know the names of these ministry leaders here at New Life. I would pray a special blessing over them, their families, um, the ministry that you've entrusted to them as they're involved and engaged in a variety of things, serving this body here and also serving our local and global communities. Lord, would you bless them? Would you reward them for the, the service that they're undertaking? And, Lord, we we acknowledge we we don't want really recognition here. We want recognition from you. We want recognition someday to hear those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Empower them, Lord. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. And then would you take the truth of your word this morning and drive it deep into our hearts and cause it to uh, take root and cause it to bear fruit for the sake of your kingdom and for the honor of your name.